welcome back to Millennial Ag, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Valerie Likely and Catherine Motspeech. Listeners, welcome back to this week's episode of the Millennial Ag podcast. Um, as we mentioned last week, there was some, you know, some crazy things going on, um, specifically in the beef supply chain, and we wanted to make sure to get a guest that you know, knew kind of what was going on and had some insight into some of the marketing and the ag business side of things. And, you know, as, as millennials, the technology side of things and these cyber attacks keep are something I think that's going to affect us for, for a long time. But before we dive too far into, um, the conversation regarding that, um, I wanted to quickly introduce our uh, guest, Dr. Daryl Peel. He's from um, Oklahoma State University um, and is a research and ag business expert down there. So I'll let him introduce himself and thank you, Dr. Peel, for being with us. You bet. Thank you guys so much for having me on the podcast. Uh, my name is Daryl Peel. I'm the Charles Breedlove Professor of Agribusiness in the Department of Agricultural Economics at Oklahoma State University. And within that, I have for 30 plus years been the Extension Livestock Marketing Specialist uh, in our department. So uh, yeah, I'm delighted to have a chance to visit with you today. Well, thank you for being here, Dr. Peel. We're really looking forward to this conversation. So let's just start out with, can you tell us what happened with the Meatpacker Processor JBS last week? Yeah, so last weekend, uh, interestingly enough, on Memorial Day weekend, uh, JBS, which is one of the four major beef packing companies in the U.S., uh, was hit in their, uh, it's JBS USA, which is all of their North American operations plus their Australian operations, was hit with a cyber attack, which uh, accessed part of their IT systems and encrypted those, uh, ultimately leading them to a, a ransomware demand. So, uh, this uh, locked up their operations uh, here basically on Sunday night, I believe. And uh, so that's what they had to deal with starting uh, last week. So with that, it sounded like the packing plants weren't able to process beef. Why was that and how long did it last? Uh, it, no, they can't. Uh, you know, packing companies deal with hundreds and hundreds, literally thousands of different products. Uh, the amount of scheduling on one of these plants. And of course, this company owns multiple plants in the U.S., uh, you know, one big plant in Canada and multiple operations in Australia. And so the data uh, demands of a system like that are enormous. The uh, information requirements of a company like that are enormous. So anything that disrupts that would effectively uh, just completely, you know, make it impossible for them to operate. Uh, you know, again, think about... Uh, you know, just one of their big plants in the U.S. Uh, so one of their mainline uh, yearling or, you know, fed steer or fed cattle uh, processing plants, uh, for example, the one in Greeley, Colorado, uh, processes around 6,000 head of cattle a day. So, you know, that's, uh, you know, 165 to 170 semi loads of cattle coming in. They're producing around, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 4 million pounds of product, beef products a day. Um, you know, something like 85 to 90,000 boxes of products. So when you start thinking, and of course, all of those beef products, once you take a, an animal apart in that process of packing and fabrication, you're turning one animal into literally thousands of different products. These big packing plants track something like uh, seven to 8,000 different product codes. 
So for all of those reasons, you can see, and it's all perishable product uh, with a, you know, uh, locked in just in time flow through system. Uh, so the data demands and the information requirements are just, you know, phenomenal and, and uh, any disruption in that information system, it just really brings those operations to a halt, at least temporarily. What are the point of these types of attacks, Dr. Peel? It, you know, there's talk about the ransoms that have been paid for like the oil pipeline or the gas pipeline, um, I think colonial something. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, is it, is it just, is it just to get money? Is it, are there activists behind this kind of thing? Is why, why do this? Well, you know, I wouldn't say that there couldn't be multiple motivations, but I think, uh, I think the basic motivation is, is just, is just money. It's a, this is just the, the, you know, the, the modern version of a, you know, a, a stage robber. Um, and, uh, and so these, these criminal organizations operating out of other countries are looking for uh, ways to capitalize on and, you know, hack into these systems and, and, uh, and demand a ransom. So, you know, I, th I think it's, I mean, you can think of it as a, uh, uh, you know, essentially a mafia type operation, at least that's the way I think of it. And, uh, um, and so it's sort of muscling in and, uh, and a way to try to extract, uh, extract money from these companies. So did JBS end up having to pay that ransom? Uh, I have not heard. They have not made public whether or not they did pay anything. Um, and, and I don't know if you've seen to actually just today as we're recording this, uh, there was news that uh, the US, uh, the FBI basically was able to recover a significant part of the ransom that was paid in the colonial pipeline deal. Uh, so I guess we're getting better at hacking the hackers in terms of tracking, uh, uh, tracking their, their money. Again, it's, it's kind of like uh, following the, the kidnap ransom. Um, and so uh, I have not heard specifically on JBS whether they paid anything. Uh, my suspicion, and I'm talking way out of my league here because I'm not an expert in this, but just knowing how those companies operate, they were not down very long. The disruptions were, in the grand scheme of things, relatively minimal. Um, and interestingly enough, from a U.S. perspective, the hack took place on Sunday night before Memorial Day holiday on Monday. So the company essentially had 24 hours to work on this before it really affected operations that were scheduled to happen, which was to start again on Tuesday. And for all of those reasons, uh, and they have said that the, uh, the hack did not get into their core systems. It was kind of on some peripheral systems. It was, an, it was enough to cause disruptions, but not enough to be as debilitating as it certainly could have been. And so for all of those reasons, you know, I, I, it's not clear to me whether or not they ever did pay any ransom. It may be that they just didn't have to and were able to, uh, to get things back online and, and avoid that. I don't know. That's encouraging to hear that um, the FBI was able to get money back from the Colonial Pipeline and, you know, hopefully, hopefully, um, I don't know, establish some kind of protocol for what seems like is going to be, um, you know, the next thing that agriculture has to deal with, what, it, you know, the next black swan event that people keep saying, oh, there's only one of those in your lifetime. And it seems like we've seen three <laughs> or four of them over the last year. We, we um, have, you know, the last couple of years for the beef industry have been one black swan event after another. In terms of this particular type of thing, I think it is something that, you know, as an economy, uh, the, you know, every industry and every business in the U.S. has to, has to get uh, 
you know, a little bit more uh, savvy about these things to harden those uh, systems so that they're not as vulnerable. Um, and, you know, again, it's, it's, uh, I think it, it is just kind of, you know, sort of where we are, where we find ourselves at this point in time. And that's something we're going to have to deal with. And, and agriculture is no different than that. Uh, um, in, in that, uh, you know, we, as much as we might like to think that we're, um, you know, pretty free and easy and, and, uh, and all of that, uh, it is a business and, and we have to be prepared for those kinds of situations. We, we can never be too prepared. And I think at the last couple of years has for sure um, encouraged us to be prepared for a lot of the unknowns um, with COVID and now this cyber attack. But what happened to, you know, you talked about how many um, thousands of cattle a day JBS processes um, just out of the Greeley plant alone. What did this um, do to the supply chain having to be down for a day? You know, uh, in terms of the company, obviously, even a day's worth of, of uh, you know, disruption is a significant event on the supplier side. So their customers that they procure cattle from, obviously, there's scheduling involved. Those cattle are scheduled uh, you know, anywhere from a couple of days to a week to maybe even two weeks ahead of time. So then there's a lot of scrambling to hold those cattle that uh, were scheduled to come in when the plant's not functioning, you know, not operational and, and, uh, and, and reschedule those cattle uh, and so on. So, you know, there's a lot of, there, there are a lot of impacts to their multiple suppliers of cattle on the one side, on the other side, of course, uh, you know, a day's worth of production loss, as I mentioned, is, is, you know, several million pounds of product. And this would, you know, it would be much bigger than that across the whole company. Um, and so, um, you know, there, there are folks that are relying on a, uh, essentially a just in time kind of inventory system where I'm sure this caused some scrambling to, you know, to, to, to fill orders, to get product, uh, there. Um, now there's limited amount of flexibility amongst nearly everybody at every level in that chain. And, and as long as the disruption was a day, day and a half, you know, uh, less than two days, probably not a major disruption, more of an inconvenience, certainly a lot of scrambling, but, uh, but not the kind of thing that really causes a major, um, you know, interruption in, in the supply chain. So it's not likely to result in the dire meat shortages that all the doomsday sayers are saying. No, definitely not. Uh, you know, this kind of a disruption is not going to be something that consumers will ever really see. Uh, at all, uh, or, you know, on, on any side, whether it's through the retail grocery supply chain um, or through the food service supply chain. Um, you know, again, there's, you know, there's, there's not a lot of storage. We don't hold product. The, the bulk of our beef industry is a fresh product industry. Um, so we don't hold product and, and have significant levels of inventories, but everybody's got a little bit of inventory. The packers themselves typically essentially have to ship out all of the product they produce on a 24-hour basis. They typically have 24 to maybe 36 hours worth of cooler space. But what that says is essentially they've got to move that product uh, about every day. So they don't have a lot of flexibility, but maybe a little bit. Um, you know, on the food service side, product that's going to further processors uh, or anybody that then ultimately is supplying, say, restaurants or institutional customers, um, you know, they're going to have a limited amount of cold storage uh, or cooler space kinds of inventories as well. And so at multiple levels, um, and because the beef industry has so many levels of, 
of, uh, you know, on the production side, as well as on the product or the market side, marketing side, um, I think all of those things collectively will be able to handle a disruption like this without any noticeable impact to final consumers uh, at any level. It's nice to see that we have a little bit of cushion, at least to protect our, the consumer and give that, that encouragement that we're not going to run out of beef. You're still going to be able to go to the grocery store and buy a steak or a hamburger. Um, but are the, the cattle producers, especially the feed yards, are they going to see a change in the pricing of the beef or of the cattle they're selling to the, to the packers? Well, you know, this event is happening in the context of a bigger issue that we're dealing with in the cattle markets right now. Uh, and there's a you know, kind of a long story, but the upshot of it is, um, you know, over the last, well, from 2014 to 2019, the cattle industry experienced a significant expansion of cattle numbers. And, and if you know anything about the history of the cattle industry, one of the most, you know, uh, noticeable characteristics of the cattle industry for the last 100 years or more has been the tendency to have cycles of, of inventories going up and down, expansions and liquidations of numbers. And there's a whole lot of reasons behind that, but um, we had a significant expansion from 2014 to 2019. And in that process, we actually grew cattle numbers enough that we actually bumped up against the capacity of the packing industry in the U.S., and so I say all that to say, and then when you combine that with the disruptions that COVID uh, provoked last year, uh, coming into 2021, we actually had more fed cattle coming to market, if you will, or ready to come to market than the packing industry could actually handle. So we've had some, some caps, some capacity constraints in the packing side. That's been disrupting fed cattle markets. Um, if there's no packers that can take those cattle, then, you know, that affects the price. And so this, this JBS event, JBS event is, is kind of a small piece of that, but one more source of aggravation, if you will, in trying to get through those numbers of cattle and get caught up. And, you know, it's a several week to several month process here where we're, you know, before we actually get cattle numbers uh, down to a point where we're not bumping up against that packing constraint. And so, so the JBS thing was unfortunate. The timing was, was not helpful. It, it didn't change it dramatically, but it sure wasn't uh, the, you know, it wasn't a good thing at this point in time. What, um, you know, there's, there is a lot of frustration, you know, we got all these fed cattle and, and we're trying to get them to market. What's, you know, what's a, what's the solution? Are we going to see more Packers um, come into play? You know, I know there's the True West plant in Southern Idaho, and you hear of a few smaller processing, but what's the big long-term solution to that? Well, it, 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 to some extent, we don't know exactly. I mean, clearly the industry, uh, and again, there's a long story here, but the upshot of it is over about a 30-year period we had chronic excess capacity on the packer side for a long time, but over time, then some plants did exit the industry, and, and it left us to a point where we had kind of gotten them in balance, except that now we've grown cattle numbers a little bit and, and sort of exceeded that balance. Um, in the longer term, uh, clearly, if, the, the, if you think about prospects for the cattle industry to actually grow again, uh, and I believe that those prospects are there when you look at global market uh, potential. Uh, and in fact, the, just the, the fact that domestic demand is so strong right now, 
Uh, but those are big investments. Uh, you don't build a, you know, a major packing plant. That's, uh, you know, many millions of dollars and it takes, uh, you know, two or three years minimum uh, to build and bring one of those plants online. So anybody that would be thinking about doing it, whether it's one of the current packing uh, industry players or whether it's an outside investment group or a group of producers, uh, anybody that would be thinking about doing that has got to be thinking very long term in terms of what are, you know, what are the likelihood that we are going to see that growth or, or have that potential for growth uh, and, 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 and uh, grow the cattle numbers behind it to support that. Um, and so it's a it's it's a bit of a dilemma uh, in terms of who will do that and exactly when they will do that. Um, I you know I, I really think long term we will add some new packing capacity in the industry, uh, but in the short run, you know I also understand given where we are, we're probably one major plant short of what we need right now. But in just a matter of a few weeks, the current cattle numbers are actually getting smaller, and we're going to be down below that. So uh, unless somebody believes that we're going to turn around and go right back up on cattle numbers, it, it probably doesn't, uh, you know, it's not very attractive right now to think about investing many millions of dollars to build a new plant. Hmm. That's interesting. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that about, um, about the, the stocking situation, I guess, in, in North America. My background's in dairy, so. Yeah, well. You know, the, yeah, exactly. Most of our major packing infrastructure in the U.S. Uh, that, all, that today is, is, is part of the, the big four and a handful of, of smaller uh, companies. But most of that was built in the 1980s. And we had, uh, you know, uh, there was around 115 million head of cattle in the U.S. Uh, then total cattle inventory. Today we have about 94 million head. So over that period of time, uh, for the most part, uh, again, we had more packing capacity than we had cattle, and it was generally getting smaller. So over time, we did lose enough of those plants to sort of right-size that packing capacity. And that was about the time that we had the first major expansion in cattle numbers in 25 years. And so it didn't take much to push us right back up against that packing constraint. Always funny in agriculture, it's you know, economics is supply and demand and you, it, it always ends up evening itself out to some extent, but there's always some, somebody that has to, you know, exit or something that has to change for it all to end up in equilibrium again. And it's, it's ever evolving and all these different um, players. And it is just, is always fascinating to me. It is. And, you know, unfortunately, these adjustments we're talking about are very long term in nature, particularly on downsizing. You know, it's, it's fun to and this is kind of true in any industry, any industry. But if you think about agriculture or whatever, it, it's fun to bid up prices and, and, and build new things and buy new things. And, you know, you can get bigger much quicker. But once it's built, whether it's a packing plant or a feedlot or uh, shoot a restaurant in town, you know, once it's built, uh, it's a long time before those go away. Even if they go broke, the current owners exit that. Um, and maybe some investors take a financial bath on an operation. But the fact of the matter is normally that operation stays in business with some new owners and some new cost structure. And so it takes uh, literally decades in the case of something like feedlots and packing plants, it takes decades to downsize those industries. 
And just about the time we did, then that's, a, that's when we turned around and saw the growth we had that has put us in the situation that we're in right now for at least for a matter of a few more weeks. Well, we really appreciate all that history, and I think we could continue to dive into it a little bit, but to jump back <laughs> to the cyber cyber attack a little bit, you know, we, we've seen these major cyber attacks on multiple industries, but for, for agriculture, you know, we're trying to automate more and more things. We're trying to um, get to the point, especially with the labor situation, um, trying to get more and more advanced in robotics and so forth, but it seems like that could potentially put us at risk for more cyber attacks. And so what's your thought on that? And where do we find like a balance? <laughs> well, I think that is a bit of a dilemma, uh, you know, for a couple of reasons. Of course, the, the labor issues in, in the packing industry and in some other industries, but particularly in the packing industry, have been chronic for a number of years. They're a little bit exaggerated right now because of everything we've been through with the pandemic and, and all of the disruptions. But really, that's not a new issue. It's been there for a number of years. Uh, and, and let's face it, at the end of the day, the packing industry is not really glamorous. So it's not necessarily the easiest industry to attract labor. It's hard work. Uh, and, it, and it's, uh, and it's, you know, again, it's not necessarily uh, the most fun thing in, in some sense of the word. So, so there is generally a move towards more automation. I mentioned how old many of the packing plants are at heart. Now, they've all been remodeled and expanded in various ways over time. But the fact of the matter is, if we build new infrastructure, I'm pretty sure we will bring a lot more technology into those plants um, partly to address directly the labor issue, but just partly because, again, a lot of that work is very hard. It's very repetitive. It's, uh, it's easy to, uh, you know, to, to have injuries to workers that have to do some of those things. And so I think we will be doing that. Now, to your point, uh, the more you make things based on electronics and, uh, you know, those kind of systems, then in some sense, the more vulnerable you are to, to this kind of thing. And I think it just speaks to the fact that Agriculture, again, like every other industry, uh, is going to have to, to put, a, you know, an, an increased amount of effort and, and uh, attention into the idea of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, building systems that, uh, that are more secure and uh, more redundant uh, so that they uh, uh, to these kind of things. And it's, uh, um, you know, and it's just kind of where we are. I think it's, it's part of the way forward. For, for not only the agricultural industries, but really for our entire economy. Dr. Peel, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on our, on our show. And we're um, excited about the conversation that we've had. Like Val says, we could go on and on and on, you know, all afternoon. <laughs> I think we could probably, yes. <laughs> um, but before we sign off, um, a couple of things. First off, do you have any parting thoughts on this, this attack and where, where it might lead the industry? Well, you know, I have no doubt that all of the other packers are spending a lot of time this week checking their <laughs> systems. And that's the other thing to keep in mind here. Obviously, when these things first sort of begin, if you will, um, you know, and maybe it's on an industry by industry basis, but the first ones uh, you know, are kind of a wake up call. I heard somebody describe this as kind of a shot across the bow for agricultural industries. And I think it is in some sense. So, so everybody is now put on alert. Um, and, and presumably, you know, taking a lot of efforts. So, so we should see less and less of these. Of course, uh, hackers are creative and, you know, new technology will bring new challenges in some sense. And so uh, we'll continue to work on these things. But, you know, probably uh, 
um, you know, the move is already there to, to learn to live in this world and to operate in this world and be prepared for these kind of situations. Awesome. Well, again, thank you very much for joining us. And before we sign off, um, you also have a podcast. Um, it's called Farm to Market Podcast, and you do a lot of writing and public speaking. So where can listeners find, well, tell listeners a little bit about your podcast and then where they can find you. Uh, you bet. Yeah, the, the Farm to Market Podcast is something I do with a buddy of mine. And uh, we describe it as, uh, you know, uh, agriculture, rural culture, uh, history, uh, specifically agricultural related or rural history things, and food issues, just a little bit of everything. We have a lot of fun with it. If we talk about whatever we want to talk about, we find interesting guests as well. So uh, we're, we're not too hard to find. You can search for Farm to Market podcast or look on most of the major uh, you know, podcast platforms and and find us. And so, yeah, we'd, we'd love to have you take a, a listen to us. I, uh, in my in my day job, if you will, as the livestock marketing specialist for Oklahoma State University, I uh, speak to a lot of producer groups around the country, a little bit internationally, at least I used to. And um, and so I'm, I'm traveling quite a lot. I'm also not very hard to find. Uh, you know, uh, my email address is, is daryl.peel at okstate.edu. And, and uh, you can always contact me. And, uh, you know, I've got, uh, I've always got a, a current market story to tell about what's going on in cattle markets. Well, great. And well, I'm sure we'll have you back on to talk about um, some of those other topics in the, in the beef market, because they're always changing and there's always something fascinating to talk about. Um, and we again, thank you for joining us. And listeners, we thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Millennial Ag, Ag Podcast. We do want to hear from you. What are your thoughts? What did you gain from this episode? Um, you can email us at talk to us at millennialag.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next week, we are Millennial Ag. <laughs>